Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Sean Davis at his home in Yamhill. It's July 28th, 2023. Thank you so much, Sean, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, first question, why wine? Why wine? That is a good question. Um, love wine. Um, my background is in art. So I have a Bachelor of Fine Art, and I also have a culinary degree uh, from Le Cordon Bleu. And I feel like wine is the ultimate medium um, it, from an artist's perspective. Um, really tells a good story. Um, tells story of time, place, people. Um, yeah, I just really, I just love it as a whole medium and the whole process. Um, and it's a long process compared to a lot of the other mediums I've worked with. Um, painting, sculpture, a little bit more instant gratification where this is a very patient um, and long, grueling, <laughs> sometimes, um, artistic expression, in my opinion. So. That's why I went to wine, for sure. Tell us about life, life before wine. Where were you born and raised, and where did you head for school? I was born and raised, uh, I was born in Lake Tahoe, in South Lake Tahoe. Uh, and then my parents, we moved to Wyoming, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And that's where I uh, graduated high school. Um, and then I came to school out here um, in Oregon. Um, I went to school at Southern Oregon, and got my Bachelor of Fine Art down there, and painting and sculpture. And then I kind of bounced around the state a little bit, Bend, um, Portland, back to Bend. Uh, went to culinary school in Portland, and then went back to Bend, and then, <laughs> and then uh, uh, came, came here for wine, ultimately. Um, I used to build golf courses for a living. That was my career before uh, wine. And then when the economy took a crap in 07, 08, that's when I jumped ship and took an internship in the, in the Columbia Gorge at a winery called Domaine Pouillon um, with Alexis and Juliet. And uh, yeah, I haven't left the wine business since then. It's a very interesting first career. Tell me about, <laughs> about taking a BFA and turning it into building golf courses. Uh, so the BFA was trying to get away from the golf business. <laughs> so the golf business was my uh, family's business. Um, um, and I still, my parents or my dad still dabbles in it a little bit, even though he's semi-retired. And uh, my brother, my youngest brother is a golf professional. That's what he does for a living. Uh, but yeah, my dad had a company that built, designed, and managed golf courses. And I've been working on a golf course since I was about eight years old. So either in the cart barn, you know, weeding bunkers, whatever. Um, and when I graduated high school, I wanted to do anything but. Um, but art didn't pay the bills very well. <laughs> I tried. I did the the uh, gallery scene for a little bit, and uh, and then I went to culinary school and did some kitchen work. And the money was just too good, especially in the building golf courses um, and managing golf courses, um, especially when you have a wife and two young kids. So um, that's why I kind of went back to that for a while. Um, but then when the economy busted, it was like my perfect opportunity, and I got out. <laughs> Um, I mean, I don't. Everything in that business has taught me a lot um, for this business as well, because um, I was on the golf course side as far as the building and the agronomy side. Mm -hmm. It taught me a lot about managing vineyards, um, um, even just logistics in the winery as well. Um, yeah, I, I take a lot of that to heart and and use nowadays in the winery for sure 
and in the vineyard. I mean, actually, vineyard works much easier than the golf course works, so it actually is kind of nice, but <laughs> we enjoy it. Before we get to wine, I'm curious about uh, the art side. So what, what, tell me about, about, about your art focus and about some of the things, maybe your, your accomplishments in that in that realm. Yeah, so art, uh, even in high school, um, you know, I would ditch a lot of classes and go hang out in the art room and I got a lot of Saturday detentions for that. So it was a passion of mine for sure. Um, and then going to art school, I went in as a painting major and left as a sculpture major because um, I was really into the process and uh, the mediums that we used in sculpture. Um, so that really kind of led me to wine in a big way. Um, and the other thing, I also studied art history over in Italy. And uh, obviously wine is a big part of their culture over there. So um, studying art history over there and drinking lots of wine. Um, I was 21, so I didn't really have the palate, but there was copious amounts of wine, and so I really enjoyed that. <laughs> um, but it just made sense to me, um, and I always just loved the idea of the process, um, even though I, I didn't know bubkiss about it. You know, um, once I once I got that internship and saw the process, it just clicked instantly. I mean, I was like, I, I can do this, no no problem, um, and it just everything about it jived. And even the more I go into it, I mean, I, I'm learning stuff every year. Um, I'm a custom crush winemaker as well. So I make 60 different wines a year plus um, for about seven to eight clients, depending on the year. Um, so I get to play with a lot of different things. I learn lots um, with my own brand. We really play around with different techniques. Um, we go old school, we go new school, we try everything. Um, I really like to play with uh, with it as much as I possibly can. My brand is more about the uh, the Marshall Davis brand is more about the winemaking process than I mean it is a little bit about the grapes. Obviously we're in Pinot Noir, but I really like to play around with the process mm -hmm. and show people how you can take the same grapes and make a wine a totally different product, even though it's the same same juice. I really enjoy that. Yeah, that sounds like someone went to culinary school. Yep. Yeah. Basically, yes. Yeah. We really. Yeah. We play around. I mean, I have the amount of different vessels I have in the winery. I mean, from like 550 gallon oak tanks to uh, 300 gallon ovals to um, 600 liter um, barrels that have thicker staves. To I mean, we we try to play around with as much stuff as I can with my brand. And then it makes it really easy for my clients when they want to be like, I want to do this. And it's like, oh yeah, we've done that before, no problem. We can do that. <laughs> so tell me about uh, the initial entry in the industry, the first internship. Uh, what You mentioned the time was right. Why, why did you decide at that point to get into wine rather than pursuing something else? So the last golf course I was working on, uh, they kind of went belly up. And so I, I was traveling for this golf course. So I was, I was in Eastern Idaho and uh, my family lived in Bend. Mm -hmm. So once it kind of stopped, I went home. I was unemployed for a little bit. I took a part-time gig at uh, a wine shop over in Bend. And uh, Alexis and Juliet came over for a tasting at the wine shop and I was helping them out with all the cases they had. And I was carrying two cases at a time. I was much younger then, much stronger, <laughs> working golf course construction. And they were like, uh, would you like to work harvest? And I said, yep. I didn't even ask my wife, I just said yes. <laughs> and uh, 
unfortunately, we were living in Bend, and the internship was up in the gorge. So I had a one-year-old and a four-year-old at the time. And my wife was like, you're going to do what? <laughs> and luckily, they were pretty cool. They'd let me come home for a day or two. It was only about a three-hour drive. But, um, but yeah, I learned a lot because I lived on property there. So, I mean, I was just immersed in what they were doing. I mean, the winery was right next to their house. So, I mean... We'd, we'd have the press going all night. Uh, I'd sit in the hot tub and then go check the pan. Like, it was it was awesome, you know? So for me, it was really cool. And uh, they also, um, especially Juliet, she had a culinary background um, and also an art background. So uh, it just, the way they talked about wine really kind of helped me a lot and really moved me forward. Um, and I also liked the idea of they worked with all big reds. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really liked Big Reds at the time. And then, yeah, then I moved over here. <laughs> Which I wasn't really stoked about at the time. But uh, as far as working with Pinot Noir, I love the area, but Pinot Noir was not my jam at the time. And it slowly became something that really helped me along, for sure. I'm going to come back to that. It's a really interesting yeah. point. But I'm curious about the work itself. You mentioned, like, kind of immediately taking to it. What, what did you think of the work of wine itself and what made you think you would be something you wanted to pursue further? It was the process. I mean, it's just the whole process. My thesis paper in college for my art was called the progression of process and just how we progress things. And wine, is, to me, is like the ultimate. I mean, it is from bud break to bottling. I mean, it's this whole process is very cyclical and I just love the whole process. I mean, you can tweak everything in between, obviously, but again, it tells the story of the weather of the year, you know, the people that tended to the vines, to the people in the vineyard, I mean, in the, in the winery, uh, the techniques we were using at the time and what I was interested in, um, and then to the bottle and then selling it. It was just, to me, it's just a great process. And it, every, the whole thing just clicked. I don't know why, it just really did. Um, it just made a lot of sense. I mean, it might be part construction, you know, beginning to finish, you know, this whole process is just a real thing. Mm -hmm. You know, with painting and sculpture, I, I never felt like I was ever finished with something, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I always feel like I could tweak it better or do that, or I shouldn't have done that. With wine, you gotta kinda commit, and it is what it is, which I really like. So after the internship, what came next? Uh, I applied for jobs over here. I got a job uh, as assistant winemaker and vineyard manager at David Hill Vineyards. Um, up in Forest Grove and I don't know if you're familiar with that vineyard um, that vineyards awesome <laughs> it's really cool um, that's that's where my the knowledge of vineyard translating into the winery really came to fruition um, and just kind of seeing all the crazy stuff they did back in the 60s in that vineyard is and kind of seeing what they were thinking what would grow here you know I mean, he's got all the different, you know, Gewürztraminer to Sylvaner to uh, Pinot Blanc to Muscat. And, I mean, they had, like, seven rows that had a bunch of random stuff just to see trial-wise. And that also clicked with me. I was like, oh, I could see what they were thinking about and um, just trying to figure out what really goes on here in this valley. And uh, it's an awesome vineyard. So you've been up there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that vineyard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a spiritual experience going there. Yeah, yeah. The old vines are pretty amazing. Um yeah, it's a trip for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, cut my teeth there, and uh, I think I was there for five years, four, five, six, no, six years. And then after that, I broke out onto my own and started doing custom crush and uh, obviously my own brand. 
talk about how the work progressed at David Hill. Obviously, kind of your first first real job in the industry. Uh, what were the biggest sort of um, learning curves, stumbling blocks for you as you started, and how did your kind of how did you take on more responsibility as you were there longer? Um, yeah, <laughs> more responsibility. Um, it definitely was an adjustment because um, Alexa and Juliet were more artistic winemakers. And then the winemaker I worked under there, he uh, definitely, you know, classically trained down in California. I think he went to Fresno State. And so very, very, I don't know, just classic American winemaking, you know. Uh, so, I mean, there wasn't a lot of experimentation, um, but, it, I mean, I learned a lot, that's for sure. Um, the vineyard was definitely where I, I really just just saw possibilities of what, could you could do with the vineyard um, even though it you could tell it was an experimental vineyard but it just showed me that we can we can broaden things here in the Willamette Valley a little bit um, and I feel like I think the valley's gotten a little closed-minded as far as what happens here obviously Pinot Noir Chardonnay you know um, but I think there's still a lot more possibilities that need to be explored here in the valley and um, yeah that was definitely some of the stuff I learned at David Hill for sure. So tell me about coming to grips with Pinot Noir and starting and learning <laughs> learning to like it and work with it. I hated Pinot Noir. I hated drinking it. I hate <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It, it was it was tough, you know. Um, but I will say Pinot Noir has taught me more than any other grape for sure. It's taught me to respect the the fruit itself. Um, really, kind of let it do its thing, you know. Um, you know, with the bigger reds, you can manipulate a little bit more. You can move around a little bit more. Pinot Noir doesn't like that. You know, it likes to, you know, once you make it, it likes to be kind of left alone. Um, as the finicky grape it is. And it really has helped me be a better Cabernet and Syrah winemaker as well, because we make those as well. Um, and whatever, I mean, I do uh, GSMs and you know, Mouvet, so anything. It just really helped me respect the fruit in general instead of trying to force it to be something. Um, yeah, because Pinot Noir, it's going to be what it wants to be or it's going to be dog shit. <laughs> so you got to respect it and let it just do its thing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So when it came time to strike out on your own, tell me about sort of how you went that process and what made you decide that that was the right time and the right thing to do. Yeah, it's never the right time, um, but it felt like a good time to go. And uh, yeah, I just, I felt like my brand was growing enough that I could do this. And I uh, found a, a couple clients to help pay my bills a little bit in between. And it just worked out in that vintage in 2014, I believe. Um, and yeah, it just, it just worked out and I was happy I did it. Um, I was scared to death for sure. Um, and I was making wine at a couple different facilities at that time to, because I didn't know exactly <laughs> what I was doing. And then I brought on some clients and they wanted to make wine here and I was making wine here. So I made wine in two spots, which was very difficult. Uh, yeah, it was in Carlton and in, in McMinnville, driving between. Uh, yeah, it was tough. I'll never do that again. That was a one year thing. <laughs> um, yeah, um, but yeah, it just all kind of clicked there. And um, I worked in, then I, the next year I stayed in Carlton for a couple years and then uh, now I'm the winemaker up at uh, Beacon Hill Winery, um, 
and that's where we do all the customer crush as well. So I'm gonna talk, I'm gonna talk about kind of client work first. I want to back up to Marshall, the Marshall David yep. brand. So with with client work specifically, you mentioned uh, a kind of a nice way to experiment, a nice way to play around with all the different things. Tell me about finding people who you want to work with and and finding kind of a common yeah. common ground and and what a common understanding of what you're going to make for them. Yeah, uh, luckily the clients I do have, uh, K and M Winery, uh, he's he's very open to anything, and um, sometimes he throws me the curveball. Like he'll be over picking fruit up in Washington, and he'll be like, "Hey, they have petit sirah. I'm gonna bring some," and I'm like, "Okay." So I mean, he keeps me on my toes too, um, which is good. Um, and you know, we we'll talk about the wines and how um, kind of how they want the wines to be perceived in the tasting room, I guess. Um, like Ken likes to have nice fun wines, good food wines. Um, so we really just try to focus on that for him. Other clients want to be very, you know, more just kind of like vineyard focused and really show what the vineyards do. So that's really easy because then basically what we do is we treat all that stuff the same mm -hmm. to really show the vineyard sites and all that. Um, and then other people just want to play too. So. Um, it just depends on the client, and um, but I'm open to do whatever. So I, I don't have a dogmatic uh, approach to wine. So I, there is no, there's no rules in my opinion. Um, and if there are rules, I'll, I would like to break them if I can. <laughs> uh, but yeah. And again, Marshall Davis is the, that's where we play. Mm -hmm. And we have several labels that are specifically for messing around. Uh, we have one label called Ryan Davis, and so uh, Ryan is my brother's first name, and then uh, Davis is my last name, so we're stepbrothers. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a play on our names, and that's we just play with either new vineyards, new fermentation styles, uh, even new cooperages sometimes barrels. Um, it's just it's our it's just an outlet to where we can show what we're doing to keep evolving our winemaking process. Tell me about starting Marshall Davis and uh, what when you said when you set out to make it. What was the kind of the initial the initial concept, initial plan? <laughs> yeah, initial plan. I don't think there was a plan. <laughs> um, so uh, my brother came up here to uh, help my wife open up the horseradish uh, restaurant, and uh, so we had it was more of a wine bar like when we first started it. And uh, he was like, hey, we should probably make some of our own wine with a label on it. And so we started out with like 50 cases and kind of went through that. And then we next year we did like 100 cases. And then the following year, it just kind of built like that. Um, so Marshall Davis, it's a play on, uh, it's my stepbrother's last name, Marshall, and then my last name, Davis. Um, that's where the name came from. Him and I are business partners. Um, he, he does sales marketing, runs the tasting room. Um, and then I do the vineyard work and, and the wines that I'd, um, and I really wanted to build kind of something family related. Um, and then we coaxed, coaxed my parents into moving up here as well. Um, so, and we bought this property with my, my parents, um, cause it's got the two houses. Um, so they lived down there and I lived, we lived up here and, um, yeah, it worked well for a while, and then my parents kind of got over it a little bit, <laughs> which I don't blame them. <laughs> they uh, they moved to Montana <laughs> and are living the good life up there. And uh, but uh, now we're we're moving on to the next generation. My uh, my oldest son is a sophomore at Oregon State studying viticultural analogy. So we'll see how that goes.
<laughs> Family business. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah, we have a good time. My brother and I, we have a great time. You know, it's really fun. And I enjoy working with him. And so let's talk about the vineyard part of things first then. As you were starting this brand, tell me about sort of what you were looking for in, 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 in vineyard sources and uh, how you... I guess how you kind of came to the role of I want to play around with this wine. I want to. I want to. I want to have fun with this. Was that initially what you thought you'd be doing, or did that kind of evolve over time? Uh, it probably evolved over time. Uh, I never thought I'd be a custom crush winemaker. I kind of said I'll never do that, and then I ended up doing that. Um, but as far as the vineyard goes, um, we. This I, uh, Yamhill Carlton wines were always my favorite as far as the Pinot Noir. Um, I like a little bit of a bigger style of Pinot Noir. Um, so I really liked this area. Um, and I was we were living in Yamhill at the time when this property came up for sale. And uh, I like the site because it's a nice south-southwest aspect, so it's a nice warm site. So the wines that come off here have some gusto to them. Um, uh, actually a really good Chardonnay site too. Um, but yeah, I just wanted something bigger. And as far as planting goes, um, we we have some fairly traditional like Pomard, one one four, triple seven, and then I I really want to play more with some um, clones that aren't traditional around here. Uh, I think we're kind of clunely stuck a little bit in the wine business here because there's so many clones of Pinot Noir, but I feel like. Especially as a custom crush winemaker, I see the same guys. I see Pomard, Triple Seven, One One Four, One One Five, Badensville. You know, that's kind of you see a lot of that stuff. Six Six Seven, um, and now we're you starting to see a little bit more with some of the heritage clones out of California with Mount Eden, Swan, Clara. Um, I have a clone here called Maria Feld, uh, which is a Swiss clone, real big clusters like this big. Um, yeah, it's fun to play around with. Good color, makes great rosé as well. Sparkling. Um, and that, that's my next evolution is to kind of keep planting those kind of obscure clones and just to help bring a little bit of diversity into the Pinot Noir realm. And that was kind of the goal with the property. So how has the brand grown and is, uh, do you have a sort of a, a, a set, uh, an idea in mind for how big it will be or what it will be? That's a good question. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've grown pretty well. Um, you know, we do between 3,000 and 3,500 cases a year right now. Um, for us, that's a lot. Um, you know, we're, 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 we're yeah, it's two brothers making wine. You know, we, we don't have the chateau or anything like that. Um, and I wish I was a little bit more focused, but I like to play around with a lot of stuff. So we definitely have, you know, probably too many SKUs of Pinot Noir, because I want to showcase the fermentation styles. And uh, same with Chardonnay. I mean, I've got like four Chardonnays, and it's probably more for my own interest than <laughs> the people buying it. But I mean, people enjoy it. Um, yeah, and I mean, we, we still always do, I like to go back to the Washington heritage a little bit. And we do Syrah and Cabernet to really bring in some of the big reds out of uh, Washington. And we do a Syrah uh, cab blend as well now. And um, we try to keep it a little bit diverse, you know. Um, I like, again, I like Pinot, it's still not my favorite. I like what it does as far as a medium goes, but like on a, what I like to drink is like, eh, it's okay. <laughs> I can't believe they let you stay here when you say that. I know, I know, I know, I know. But I mean, I, was, I still love Pinot Noir. It's taught me so much, but yeah. I mean, I like what it does. It does, it has a lot more capabilities than a lot of the other varietals, in my opinion. Um, the, the subtleties come through a lot. So I mean, I like that aspect 
you know, quite a bit. And there's a time and place for Pinot, right? <laughs> um, I'm curious about selling wine, obviously a, a, a different challenge, and you've mentioned the, the horseradish kind of started off as a way to sell wine, so tell me about the evolution of, of selling your wine. Yeah, everything went through the horseradish for the first probably four years, um, and we just kept throwing the money that we made off the wine back at the, at the brand, and so it slowly grew. Um, you know, we started off with a little bit of Pinot Noir, but we brought in the Syrah and the Cabernet from Walla Walla. Um, that was kind of our real big excitement. We really liked that. And it sells well around here because there is so much Pinot. Um, and then when we when this place came online, obviously we brought in quite a bit more Pinot. Um, and then we started selling enough that uh, Ryan said it's time to open up a tasting room. And luckily, um, our tasting room is right next to the horseradish, which works out really well. Uh, so we can bring food over and um, we kind of have a very different vibe to our tasting room than a lot of the places around here. It's much more relaxed, um, almost like a sports bar kind of. You know, we have TV and we watch sports, we always football on the TV, whatever sports on, you know. Um, but then you can, we bring, you can bring food over from the horseradish, um, so it makes it kind of fun. Mm -hmm. um, and then like during March Madness, we'll put a basketball hoop in so people can shoot hoops. <laughs> and then during like a golf event, we'll bring in, we have a, like a little pop-up course that we set up in the tasting room so people can putt around while they're drinking wine. It's pretty fun. <laughs> so we're, we're just a little, we're a little bit different than a lot of the big houses around here. We try to lighten it up a little bit. and I mean, we try not to take it too seriously, yeah. if that makes sense. So obviously the horseradish has grown into its own its own thing. Yeah. So tell me about having uh, the, the multiple businesses in the family. Uh, yeah, it's real fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, restaurant ownership. Um, that's it's my wife. She that's what she does. I put in. I have input, but uh, that's her business. And yeah, it's tough. It, it, Especially like when my kids were little, it was really tough. Um, yeah, my wife would work weekends, and then, yeah, we didn't see each other a lot. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah. Um, now, I mean, she's owned the restaurant almost 14 years, um, so she's had a good long run with that. Um, but it, it really did. I mean, it catapulted Marshall Davis for sure. Um, got us to where we're at, and and we still. We still uh, jive off each other. Um, we do winemaker dinners at the restaurant um, quarterly or so. Uh, so that helps a lot. Um, and it's a benefit to our wine club members too, for sure, um, having that there. It's not easy though. <laughs> no, <laughs> one or the other would be fine. <laughs> but both, it's quite the, uh, uh, yeah. I, I wouldn't wish that on a lot of people, to be honest. <laughs> It's it's been tough. Well, I assume especially the last few years have been tough. So I'm gonna talk about about kind of talk about 2020 and, and the unique challenge of that year um, from your perspective. Tell me about handling handling pandemic, handling the fires of, of the 2020 harvest. Uh, what were the what were the biggest challenges and sort of how did you approach them and, and get through them? The pandemic was one thing. I mean that's for sure. Um, luckily, you know, uh, my brother and I. Uh, I mean, we actually had a great year that year. Uh, people were buying wine like crazy. So that sales were not the issue. It was just the, in, the in engagement with the customer. Um, but we we put a huge tent in the back parking lot behind uh, the horseradish. So right, I mean, it was a huge tent, huge. And um, I created a new job for myself, uh, propane management for heaters. Yep. 
<laughs> that sucked. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we still did winemaker dinners. Um, we still had some parties back there. Um, it, yeah, we, we did everything we could to the letter of the law, I guess, whatever. Um, but yeah, we didn't stop and it was probably harder on the restaurant than the winery for sure. Um, but we still did it. I made it through, um, the fires of 2020 though, that was, that was interesting. Um, I definitely, I had rosé and chardonnay in already before the fires, like the day or two before. And the day I was driving Syrah back from Walla Walla is when the Syrah, or when the fire started. Um, I didn't really know what was gonna happen, obviously. Um, the winds were blowing in a weird direction. Um, I was hoping they would change real quick and we wouldn't have to deal with that. Um, but talking with some colleagues around here, um, specifically Ken Wright, I talked to him in the parking lot one day after we'd been, we'd been bombarded in for 10 days of smoke. And I was like, what are you gonna do? And he's like, what a better time to learn, man. It's like, all right. So uh, I, we didn't turn down any fruit. We brought in everything um, for all my clients. Um, we made Pinot Noir and we had some good success on some stuff and some not so, so good success. Um, most of the stuff that got hit hard, we turned into either sparkling or Pinot Noir Blanc. We took off the skins immediately and we actually had great success with that stuff. Um, that There was no issues with those wines at all, which was nice. Um, yeah. But we learned, I learned a lot, you know, um, and I definitely would do some things differently now. Um, but yeah, we played around with a lot of different things, uh, different processes, uh, and some worked, some didn't. Um, yeah, but we had some success and I'm glad we're pretty much done with that crap. <laughs> I have a few 2020s left, but not many. So, um, yeah, and it, for us, it really depended where you were in the valley too. Some of my clients that were getting Duddy fruit or Shehel Mountain fruit or even some Eole Amity stuff, that's where we really had to pivot hard. Um, some of the stuff over here, um, especially up in this northwest uh, part, um, we actually made some good PNR without, in my opinion, any smoke tan. Um, yeah, they were very, very clean wines. Um, but yeah, that sucked. <laughs> the past two years have been great. <laughs> Even though they've had some struggles, you know, uh, last year ended up being awesome with that October we had. So it turned out to be a great year. So, um, I'll take anything over that crap. There's nothing you can do about smoke, you know? You know, you can just sit there and just put your hands up and hope for the best. And I mean, we've learned enough and talking with people in California. At the time, I had a client from Australia and uh, they uh, they deal with that crap all the time. Luckily, the wines they make, you know, much thicker skins. Um, Pinot is so susceptible to it. I mean, you, you blow a little bit of smoke on it and you're gonna smell it. Um, so they we, we got some techniques from them um, between charcoal, um, ozoning to um, we, we used a product out of California called, it was, was it, anyway, it was a housing with uh, food resin in it. Mm -hmm. And the, the thing about that is it didn't take the smoke smell or the taste out. So if it was that bad, it was, there's nothing we could do about it. But uh, a lot of the smoke taint is texture on the wine. It's, it almost gives it, a, like you almost licked an ashtray. It gives it a big drying effect. 
but it doesn't smell like smoke. It's weird. It's really just harsh on the palate. And when we ran the wine over this, it took that away. And um, the biggest issue with that is when you take the test of our markers for the smoke taint, it didn't change. So obviously there's something else that we're not measuring to to uh, adjust for that. So there's still a lot we can learn about smoke tame. I hope I just never have to learn about it again. <laughs> but we had, we had good success. Yeah. You mentioned the last couple of years being better. Obviously there were unique challenges, the heat dome in 2021, the, the, the frost last year. Tell me about sort of coming, dealing with that in the vineyard and dealing with that in the winery um, as you're getting more kind of unique challenges like that. What are the what are you taking away from and what are you sort of preparing yourself for as you as you go into each growing season? Um, I think it's, for me, it's a good thing because I really think then we can be vintage driven a lot more because the vintages are kind of getting a little, a little chaotic. I'm not going to say crazy. Like we thought this year was going to be chaotic with how late we were, but then we've jumped up. I mean, we're going to be harvesting just like we were in like 15 and 16. So I mean, mother nature just got its own mind and, um, but I think with Pinot Noir, it really it tells that story so well, and I, I think it's not a bad thing, you know. Um, one of these years, we're gonna have a super cool year, and people are gonna freak out about that. So it's like, but we used to have those all the time when I first started over here, you know, um, like 10, 11, 13. Well, 13 wasn't quite like that, but um, yeah, I mean, cool. That's what it was, and um, yeah, kind of people I remember in 19 were kind of freaking out because when we had all the rain. Um, but that's what we're kind of known for here. Um, so, I mean, it just really tells the story of the vintage. So tell me about uh, with, the, with, the, with Marshall Davis where it is now, what are you kind of looking ahead to for the next few years uh, with your brand and with your, uh, with your custom crush work? That's a good question. That is a good question. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, there, we've talked about taking uh, an approach of maybe opening up some tasting rooms in dis different cities as well. Um, the Valley's getting very saturated with, a, there's a lot of wine now, which is not a bad thing, um, but it's, you know, it's a very competitive market right now. And of course we're a small little tasting room in a small little town in Oregon. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we're talking about maybe taking it um, east a little bit, maybe into the Rocky Mountains or maybe even to Texas or something like that, mm -hmm. just to kind of get get it out more into the the country a little bit um i mean a lot of times when you go to other states and stuff they still don't really understand oregon pinot noir to the holes i mean you go to chicago new york that kind of stuff they they get it because they have access to it but you go to the midwest a little bit they're like huh so it, it you know it's lighter style wine than they're used to the chardonnays are more acid driven so it, it's a fun story to tell and I, we'd like to maybe venture that way um that's things we've talked about, but who knows. Um, we're, we're up in the air, and we're still having fun here, obviously. Um, and we're happy with the growth we're, and kind of where we're at right now. Of course, we'd like to grow more, um, eventually maybe build a winery up here, you know. Um, but who knows? <laughs> I'll get my kids through college, and then I'll f figure out what I want to do when I grow up. Yeah. <laughs> and when I have my free time. <laughs> free time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, for someone who said it wasn't going to be a custom crush winemaker and now is doing a lot of custom crush winemaking, is that something you're looking to continue? For now, yeah. Um, it keeps me on my toes. Um, eventually, though, I do, I would like to get to a point where I can focus a little bit and really focus on 
my brand maybe a little bit or someone's brand. You know, maybe I do my brand and one more, but really kind of focus in and really see how high of a product we can create. Um, that would be fun. Um, doesn't necessarily pay the bills really well, but you know. Um, <laughs> but eventually, I'd like to get to that point where I can start to focus. And right now, I feel like I'm still like in my education uh, part of my winemaking career. You know, I'm still learning lots. And I mean, I've been in it for this will be my 17th vintage, but there's still you only get to do it once a year as far as fermenting. So I've only done it like 17 times, really. Um, I mean, with a lot of different wines, but yeah, yeah, I need more vintages under my belt. And then I feel like then I can start focusing really hard on something special, maybe. So I'm curious about your sort of initial impressions of, of Oregon wine and of the industry as you were getting into it. What did the industry look like to you as you were getting into it? What, what was especially attractive about it? Oregon, when I first got here, it was, it's way, it was way different than it is now, way different. <laughs> Carlton was way different. Um, it was, you know, farmers making wine, kind of, uh, which I liked. Um, although the product now is much better than the product was then. Um, not saying there wasn't quality wine then, but um, you could also find wines that were hit or miss. How about that? Um, yeah, it, uh, it's changed a lot. <laughs> um, California is coming up here a lot, you know. I mean, they have the resources, the winemakers, the, you know, the schools that produce the winemakers. So a lot of that's coming up here, obviously. The corporations that are coming up here from there, uh, that, that's changed a lot. Um, the demand for wine is definitely, at least Oregon Pinot has changed. Um, it was getting on the map, but now it's on the map for sure. Um, in the past 15 years, for sure. It's, I mean, Oregon wine is definitely, everyone knows Oregon Pinot Noir, for sure, if you're in the wine. Um, so that's probably the biggest change I've seen. Um, I'm a little worried it's gonna change into the California, like Napa, Sonoma, which is not a bad thing. I mean, progress is progress, but I think it's gonna push a lot of people out like me and, uh, you know, small family producers. Um, that want to have fun with wine too, you know. So with that said, what I guess what do you see for the future of Oregon wine, but also what do you hope for the future of Oregon wine? Well, I hope the I hope the weather stays pretty mellow. <laughs> it's changing. Uh, yeah, I think we're going to start seeing maybe some bigger varietals here in Oregon, uh, or at least in the Willamette Valley. I mean, um, and then yeah, I just it's it's just booming, man. I mean, there's vineyards growing everywhere. Um, it's just going up. I mean, it'll it'll have to plateau at some point, but it's just, things are going to get more expensive. Wines are going to get more expensive. Food's going to get. Restaurants are going to get more expensive. But that's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the nature of the beast. It's better than going the back, going the other way. And you know, I think with Oregon though too, especially where we have to grow grapes on the hillsides, it kind of limits to where the grapes can be grown. Um, so you're still going to have the agricultural aspect, which I hopefully think will ground the area a little bit. You know, people are still going to be growing filberts and grass seed and all that stuff. And hopefully that helps ground uh, the area a little bit. And it just doesn't go totally wine-centric. Well, you need balance, you know, in anything. And I, I think right now I think we still have a good balance of that. Um, you can still go to a good dive bar in Yamhill and, you know, it, that's fun, and you need that. And hang out with some farmers, and they're not all great farmers, and um, it's a good thing. But who knows where that's going to go? 
especially as property rises and all that stuff. So it might get unaffordable. So if someone were to ask you for your advice or, or words of wisdom on getting into the Oregon wine industry, entering into the industry, what, what would you tell them? Don't. <laughs> or at least don't buy. Like, if you want to work, sure. But, man, yeah, owning a vineyard, it, I don't know if I'd do that again. You know, I mean, I love it, but at the same time, it's uh, there's enough grapes out there you can just go buy. You know, let, let that be someone else's headache. I mean, it's like owning a restaurant and raising your own cattle and growing all your own food. You know, it's, yeah, it's a great idea, but let someone that's really good at it do it. And, you know, there's a lot of opportunities though right now. So the more than when I came up here, mm -hmm. you can get a job in just about anything you want right now, which is good. All right. That's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything we didn't cover that you'd like to cover today? I don't think so. We covered a lot. Excellent. Well, good. Thank you so much yep. for joining us, Thank you. for uh, sharing your space with us today and sharing your stories. We'll let you off the hook. Awesome. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.